Welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. The genesis of today's broadcast, today's podcast, I guess I can't be said to be broadcasting in the strictest sense, as in the olden days, but the genesis for this podcast is last week's Mass, and I was back to the Novus Ordo. Not to say I will never again go to the TLM. I sometimes think I might try to straddle the two for a while and sort of enjoy the fruits of both. And of course, the same centrality, the Eucharist, which is essentially going to be my subject again today in a slightly different way than in previous episodes. I was uh, one of two servers at the Mass, which I do at the 1230 at my parish. And yes, yes, I know, not a TLM thing, I understand, and I still think about it, will continue to think about it, but for now I'm leaving things as they are. So the time came for the Gospel. It's the Gospel that started me on this, and well, let me read the Gospel that was for last week. If I understood uh, the homily, there will be other readings related to the gospel in the next weeks. So, this is the gospel. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they themselves got into boats and came to Capernaum looking for Jesus. Now, I'm breaking in here. I can't help myself. Luckily, I'm not a priest, not going to be a priest because a priest is never supposed to break into the gospel when they're reading it in church. But I'm not reading it in church. I'm reading it to make a point of sorts. And so I just want to break in and say that one of the really wonderful things about having traveled to Israel when I did, and lucky I did it when I did in 2018, is that now when I read or hear anything from the Bible, from the New Testament particularly, I have a picture of the place and of what is being spoken about. Capernaum was really quite amazing. It's right on the Sea of Galilee, and there are so many things compact within it. The very old temple where Jesus no doubt preached, the house of Peter's mother, and of course the the water itself. And you just have an image of the miracles that went on there and this moment that I'm reading about. So the disciples are looking for Jesus in Capernaum. Back to the actual reading. And when they found him across the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Amen, amen. I say to you, you were looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. So they said to him, What can we do to accomplish the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he sent. So they said to him, what sign can you do that we may see and believe in you? What can you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So Jesus said to them, 
Amen, amen, I say to you. It was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. So what's the Lord talking about? That extraordinary thing that we, all these years later, experience. Jesus, the bread of life. So that got me thinking as we were now sitting and watching the priest prepare the gifts, the bread and the wine, merely at this point, still in form and substance, bread and wine. And then we're kneeling as the moment of consecration approaches. And then it does. The priest is raising the bread to heaven. I'm the server this day who rings the bells. So the idea of ringing the bells is to bring attention to the amazing, the mysterious, the wondrous act that's happening on the altar. The act not of the priest, but the act of Jesus Christ through the priest becoming present truly in front of all of us as we pray. And then the wine, the cup, the chalice is raised to heaven and it too is transformed into the blood, the actual blood of Jesus Christ under the form, still the appearance, but not the substance any longer of wine, but of Jesus himself. The very blood that was poured out for all of us. I'm wondering, thinking about at the same time, what exactly am I seeing? What am I feeling about what I see? And then when the time comes for me to receive the host, placed on my hand shaped in the form of a throne one hand palm up over the other hand palm up and perhaps a story or a discussion for another time you probably know there is debate about whether or not one should receive on the hand at all and whether it ought to be as it always was in terms of prior history pre-vatican history of course just received on the tongue I'll talk about it a little bit as I go along because it does have something to do with how one sees what is being received. So as I receive him on my hand, I immediately consume him. And I remembered that you were instructed, or it was instruction when I was a kid, and I think it's still the instruction that when you receive communion, you don't chew the host. You let the host, our Lord, dissolve in your mouth. I don't think I'd done that for a long time, and I did this particular day, and again was thinking, what exactly am I feeling? What exactly should the effect be upon me as I'm receiving our Lord? You might be happy to know that I will not read the entirety of the portion of the Catechism of the Catholic Church relating to the Sacrament of the Eucharist which begins at uh, paragraph 1322. But because I was looking to get the sense of what I ought to be feeling, what I ought to be perceiving about receiving him, I did get to the section and I'm going to look at that with you because I'm looking, I was looking for some key to what I should be experiencing. And 
perhaps I've experienced in the past, but talk about a Damascus moment, perhaps in some ways one might consider that it ought to be a Damascus moment, but I wasn't having a Damascus moment or anything close to it. So anyway, I started looking, and in the Catechism, beginning at 1391, paragraph 1391, there's a discussion of several pages about the fruits of Holy Communion. Holy Communion augments our union with Christ, that, of course, other sacraments other sacramentals, our reading, other aspects of the Mass, the Liturgy of the Word, all of that is part of our relationship with Christ. But the Holy Communion is a centrality, or the summit, the source and summit, as we read also in the Catechism. And in that, there is an extra, I guess you call it, a special oomph. The principal fruit, according to the Catechism of Receiving the Eucharist, is an intimate union with Christ Jesus. Now, that's interesting, I suppose, and I've, I've been aware that that is something that is said, but it kind of now makes me understand a little uh, the poetry of some of the famous saints, like John of the Cross, who virtually wrote romances in their poetry about their relationship with our Lord. And I want to be clear, the, the problem with human nature mine and others, is that we tend to cheapen intimacy by reducing it purely to a sexual, a pleasurable act. And while that's not insignificant, it misses the ultimate point of what an intimate union is, either with another human being or through the Eucharist with Jesus Christ. That's pretty big. It's an intimate union, just as when we eat food, when we eat bread, our bodies are enhanced. They are given life. Holy Communion achieves something in our spiritual life that when we take in the body and blood, the flesh of the risen Christ, according to the Catechism, we are finding that it preserves, it increases, and renews the life of grace that we got at baptism when we received sanctifying grace and when original sin was wiped from us. The Catechism uses the phrase that Holy Communion separates us from sin. It, What our Lord did is he gave up his entire body, his body and soul, for the very forgiveness of sin, to remediate something that was so totally broken. It helps with our charity, makes us stronger to be charitable, to express love, to get rid of the things that hold us back. Our, we don't like to say these things in these days, our disordered attachments, because we all have them. It protects us from committing further mortal sins. You know how sometimes you hear a priest talk about the Eucharist, the entirety of the sacraments really being a medicine for us. It is not a substitute for the, the forgiveness of sins already committed, but it does preserve us from further sinning. It, it gives us strength. It's like putting on an armor, if you will. At least that's how I see it. But again, I'm still not at feeling the feeling. I'm, I'm trying to, uh, I'm, I'm talking about what's in the catechism, and it's important to know what's in the catechism, but I'm trying to get to something here. I'm not quite sure what yet, but we'll see. 
we, each of us, and as part of the church, are participating in the body and blood of Christ. You know, one of the critiques that traditional Catholics and individual Catholics who are still going to the Novus Ordo have of the way things changed from the 1950s to the 1960s is that we weren't told to read the actual documents of Vatican II or any of the documents going before Vatican II. It was just, as I said last week or the week before, was just this change went from this amazingly structured way of looking at our faith. Sometimes some people would say too much of a structure to a kind of rodeo of whatever everybody thought ought to be the Catholic Church and the Eucharist. But if you actually look at the Catechism, you get a real sense of the line from the beginning of the Church as Christ founded it to today. It is not as if Vatican II simply eradicated everything that went before, notwithstanding what it felt like because it's important to know that we are relying too much in this world in these days on what we feel. So I'm kind of talking about what do I feel when I receive communion? But it may be that I am focusing too much on what I feel as opposed to having a kind of intellectual, spiritual experience of what God was teaching through the Catholic Church. So you have, for example, a reference, just one reference, I'm sure there are others, I know there are others, to the Council of Trent at 1376, paragraph 1376 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, part two, section two, chapter one, article three, that says as follows, the Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring because Christ, our Redeemer, said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God, and this Holy Council now declares it again, that by the consecration of the bread and wine there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. There is, for us, a constant battle between what we're seeing, and not completely, and the truth of what is happening. And unless we're utterly focused, our own body and soul, we're going to miss it. Just as sometimes when I'm sitting right there in the sanctuary, I'm missing it. I may not be experiencing the Damascus moment because of whatever distractions or preoccupations I have, but in fact it is an opportunity for a Damascus moment every single time we go to Mass. So even again in the Catechism at paragraph 1381, it's made clear what this difficulty is, I think, and it says that in this sacrament are the true body of Christ and his true blood is something that cannot be apprehended by the senses, says St. Thomas, but only by faith, which relies on divine authority. For this reason, in a commentary on Luke 22:19, this is my body, which is given for you, St. Cyril says, do not doubt whether this is true, but rather receive the words of the Savior in faith, 
for since he is the truth, he cannot lie. And then there's a poem, which may be by St. Cyril, but is not clear right now, reading this. Godhead, here in hiding whom I do adore, masked by these bare shadows, shape and nothing more. See, Lord, at thy service, lo, lies here a heart, lost, all lost, in wonder at the God thou art. Seeing, touching, tasting, are in thee deceived. How says trusty hearing, that shall be believed. What God's Son has told me, take for truth I do. Truth himself speaks truly, or there is nothing true. I mean, there's this amazing stuff contained in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And somehow or another, when things shifted, we were kind of not reminded of those really substantial documents that probably would have saved our faiths during those days and would save them now if we would but just direct ourselves to them. I suppose what I'm thinking right now is in reading all of these things that faith requires an effort on our part. The friendship between us and God, God relentlessly coming towards us, but we have to respond to the offer of friendship. And if we're being serious, it's probably a good idea to understand the history of the church, to say read the earlier documentation and see how it all plays into what is true today as was true yesterday. That the world around us doesn't determine what is true ultimately. I think I've mentioned that I have been reading the Catechism of the Council of Trent, although I stopped at baptism and got distracted myself again and have not gotten officially to the Eucharist except as I was doing this particular podcast. In one of my podcasts, I mentioned that you see a lot of, in the Council of Trent's catechism, the exhortation to pastors to explain things to the people. And the reason for this is that the Council of Trent was trying to deal with a whole bunch of heresies, and it was also dealing with the Reformation. So, There was a lot going on back then, just like there's a lot going on right now. So whenever there was a paragraph about the truth of the Catholic Church, it would start out with, here the pastor should explain. And I think therein lies the problem with Vatican II's consequences, is that the pastors weren't there or just didn't understand that they were to explain to the people what was happening, that the essence of the faith had not changed, but that certain surrounding features, not necessary features, but features that would somehow, hopefully, make the faith more accessible. It just didn't happen that way. I have no wish to denigrate, and who am I to denigrate, the language of the documents of Vatican II, which I haven't read in full anyway, so I'm in no position to do it, as I said. However, just a quick sensibility is that, as I've read the Council of Trent's Catechism, to me there's something about the language that is so powerful that in some ways it it helps me visualize the things that I must learn to take by faith. So here's an example in the section on the Eucharist, at page 215, the meaning of the real presence from the Council of Trent. Here the pastor should explain that in this sacrament are contained not only the true body of Christ and all the constituents of a true body, such as bones and sinews. I love that, because that gives you an image, doesn't it? 
but also Christ, whole and entire. He should point out that the word Christ designates the God-man, that is to say, one person in whom are united the divine and human natures, that the Holy Eucharist therefore contains both, and whatever is included in the idea of both, the divinity and humanity, and the blood, all of which must be believed to be in this sacrament. In heaven, the whole humanity is united to the divinity in one hypostasis, or person. Hence, it would be impious to suppose that the body of Christ, which is contained in the sacrament, is separated from his divinity. God is longing to, wanting to, break through our monumental pride and its casual smugness, not just coming up to us and extending his hand, but coming inside of us. And even with all these beautiful words, when you just read the words about the fruits, the effects, the objective effects of the Eucharist, somehow, despite the enormity of what is being described, we're so distracted, we're so frail, we're so prideful, that we still miss what's happening there. And what's happening, even more so, within us, if we would allow it. Perhaps that's one reason that, in some ways, the traditional Latin Mass has a bit over the Novus Ordo. I mean, there are lots of arguments about them in either case, in far more detail than I'm going to do. But one obvious advantage is that, at least in its liturgy, in its form, it acts as if God is the centrality, not the people. The people are what are being transformed by God, and so it is that we must be directed to God in order for that to happen. So the physical facing toward God and the focus on God and his acts and his miracle right there is more likely to be seen because it is the centrality of the focus. The Eucharist is there to stir us into a relationship with God. When people say, and you hear it in the modern world all the time, I'm very spiritual, what does that mean? How is that directing you to God? What effort do you or I make when we say, I'm spiritual? What is a key thing that the Eucharist is present, our Lord is present to do for us? Here was another amazing paragraph I ran across in the Council of Trent related to the Eucharist. Finally, to comprise all the advantages and blessings of this sacrament in one word, it must be taught that the Holy Eucharist is most efficacious toward the attainment of eternal glory. For it is written, He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is to say, by the grace of this sacrament, men enjoy the greatest peace and tranquility of conscience during the present life. And when the hour of departing from this world shall have arrived, like Elias, who in the strength of the bread baked on the hearth walked to Horeb, the mount of God, they too, invigorated by the strengthening influence of this heavenly food, will ascend to unfading glory and bliss. Our job, it seems to me on this earth, and this is just me talking, in fact, all of this is just me talking, <laughs> is that we have to allow our Lord to penetrate our souls and our minds when we receive him. 
so that we will experience the peace and tranquility. If we block that, we're not going to be able to do it because it's part of our choice to accept this great gift. So when I'm sitting at Mass, if I'm looking at my phone, if I'm talking to folks in the back in the vestibule during the ceremony, that's something I see a great deal of during Mass, and it's very disturbing, is that with great intention, no one is trying to be um, uncaring or discourteous, but very often this conversation going on in the vestibule during the Mass, sometimes even during the consecration. We have to put ourselves in the proper frame of mind, disposition, to be pierced by this wondrous thing, this Lord, this God of heaven, who comes to us every time we go to Mass. If I'm being honest, I have to ask myself, what's my disposition during Mass, and particularly when I'm receiving him? And again, there's something to what the adherents of the traditional Latin Mass say about receiving on the tongue as opposed to receiving in the hand. For example, you'll see someone, perfectly lovely person, who has some need to use a cane, and so will come up to the altar. But because they have to hold on to the cane, they're not receiving in the throne-like, two-handed, palm-up manner that signifies the awesomeness of what is happening at that moment. So nobody's fault, but there's another example of how we are kind of becoming casual. Not kind of, we are casual. It's as if we are only receiving a piece of bread. And then you have the fully able-bodied who receive in various manners or who kind of examine the host and kind of walk away with it. They're walking away with God is what they're doing, but not treating him as God. You can say when you receive on the tongue, there is nothing between the priest and your body. You're just receiving him directly. There is nothing inhibiting the receipt. And in a way, in that moment, it's like receiving something that would be utterly life-saving as if you have had no sustenance for a very long time. It is not merely because it is an obligation to attend Mass, but because it is very pivotal to our very spiritual existence, whether or not we go to heaven, whether or not we enjoy the bliss, whether or not we experience here on earth a bit of a sliver of that joy that we will achieve in heaven because of God's gift to us. So for a second, let me go back to me sitting in the sanctuary or me receiving communion and having received communion, allowing our Lord to dissolve on my tongue. In that period, in that space of what? 35 seconds, 45 seconds? Something did occur to me that had never occurred to me before and is as obvious as could possibly be. Since Jesus' whole body, blood, soul, and divinity was within me, in a sense I had an image, I had an image suddenly of not only my heartbeat, but his within me. It was kind of terrifying, but it was also wonderful, a sense of a closeness that is rare in human life and is a beautiful portent of what can be achieved in heaven, of the heaven that God is offering us, if only we'll pay attention and do what he says.
We all balk at the formality of the TLM, but you know what? It has something there because it puts us directly, undistractedly in mind of what is going to be happening on the altar. We can do that at the Novus Ordo. Tomorrow, when I go to Mass, I have to come early. I have to come prayerfully. I have to come thoughtfully. I have to come leaving behind all my distractions as best as I can and focus on what is going to happen when God comes to me, stands before me, and asks me to accept him within myself. Let's try to approach him as the king of the universe, which he is. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. And boy, am I ordinary because I'm struggling with all sorts of things. There is no great theological understanding here, but an effort toward theological understanding. If you're enjoying these shows, please feel free to comment, hit like, and continue to listen. And I look forward to seeing you, hearing from you, next week.